Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Horrible Things Podcast. This is a show where we talk about murder, natural, well not natural disasters, man-made disasters that can sometimes have naturally occurring things in them, aka Love Canal. If you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. Uh, my name is Emma Sexton. I'm the host of this podcast, and today I'm joined by... Stephen Wright. Yes, a highly requested guest to have back on the show, I have to say. Literally so many people have come up to me and been like, so when's Stephen going to come back on? Stephen and Kaya, we miss them. I was like, soon, I promise, for months. And here it finally is, the 50th episode. We have Stephen back. I'm such a high-profile guest, you know. It, yeah. It, you know, I, I, I said... It'll come in due time, but uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, it's exciting to be here. The last time we did this, it was really fun with Kaya. She graduated since, uh, graduated with her master's, so now she's like a real therapist or whatever. Now I can hopefully have times on the show where I can be like, let's get a therapist's opinion. Kaya? <laughs> like, hey, Kaya, can you... Uh... And she'll be like, um, I can't speak to that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Kaya was so cool on that last episode, though. It's always interesting to have people that actually know what they're talking about on the show because I feel like as many cases as I've looked at, I'm never going to have the same perspective as someone who actually is in like academia and knows what they're talking about. She knows her stuff. She, she does. Stuff. Yeah. She has a master's degree. She does. She's it's a strange. master of psychology. Yeah, she is. And she has mastered it for sure. And there have been many... Uh, Many days of living with this person who's stuck in the office for like eight hours a day working on that big project and all that good stuff. But the hard work paid off and now things are great. So we actually like have a normal marriage for once. It's pretty cool. <laughs> How long was her paper at the end of it? 122 pages. <sighs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was quite a beast. And it was like really research intensive. So she had to interview people and people who are like actual practitioners kind of in the field and get their perspective on her focus. And so there was a lot of that and then just kind of putting all together and then looking at, okay, how does this affect me? How am I experiencing this? And kind of all those lot, lot went into it. A lot of things she talked about and a lot of things she had to process. So it was definitely a growth, uh, you know, growth experience for her, for sure. Yeah. That's amazing. I feel like also just in general, so much has changed since last time you were on the, the podcast. Like, I don't even, how long ago was that? It was months, at, at least a couple months. I think we still lived in Fullerton. So maybe September. September. August, September-ish, maybe. I don't know. Maybe, I, I don't know when the last one was, but it's been quite a while. So I'm glad to be back here. How has, how have things changed for you? How's life been since all, like... Everything that's happening lately, have wow. been? It's been it's been a huge change. So, big one is uh, not having a wife in college, which has been really cool. Um, we've we moved into a place. We moved out of our place in Fullerton. Stayed with our in laws for a little bit. Um, that was supposed to be two months, but the place we're moving into remodeled, and uh, two months turned into like seven, which was actually really cool. It was good. It wasn't. We didn't like hate each other. But towards the end, we were just like ready for our own space, especially mm -hmm. when COVID hit. There was like five people working full time-ish. Kyle was in school, but it's like full-time work. There's yeah. like five people doing work full-time in the house at once. So my office was a TV tray on my bed, on my lap uh, for quite a while. So now we have our own place and it's cool. And we live in Huntington Beach in our own spot. And 
things are good. Things are awesome. That's awesome. That's great. I think I'm trying to remember since we last did the podcast, if anything true crime related has happened besides the whole, like, you know, national emergency (laughs) thing. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people could probably get away with a lot of crime right now just because our focus is (laughs) on the pandemic and the racial (laughs) injustice. Yeah. The whole, (laughs) sorry, but like no one's going to be chasing after the Walmart shoplifter these days. (laughs) They have more problems to worry about than that, it seems. Bigger fish, bigger, bigger pandemic fish to fry. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Bigger institutional uh, injustices to fry right now. So, but we're making progress. Yes, we are. That's cool. That's good. Speaking of institutional injustices, that was like the perfect segue into (laughs) what I wanted to talk about next. I came in this cold. I know. No idea. (laughs) That's when I do my best work. So today we're going to be talking about a kind of case that I have never talked about on the show before, which is why I'm double excited to do it because it's something I've never done before. 50 episodes in and I didn't even think to do this, but something, aka... Um, seeing all the protests around the United States and for people who even people aren't in the United States, there's been protests like all around the world. It really made me think of this case. And then I was thinking to myself, like, you know, even in the true crime community, I feel like people talk about a lot. The fact that in the media, in podcasts, in the news, everything, um, you know, people of color and the crimes against them aren't covered at the, the same way mm-hmm. that the death of white people are. Yeah. And I think it's like really important to talk about because it, it's not less of a deal if somebody who is a person of color is murdered. You know, I think, I feel like as a society, as a humankind, we should all just like agree on that. I just want to like say that's not okay. It's not okay on my podcast. And it's like generally not okay anywhere to value one person's life over another based on like the color of their skin or anything like that. Yeah. This is an inclusive murder podcast. This is, yes. <laughs> we do not we discriminate. Don't discriminate against who gets murdered here. Okay. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting though, because I hear, I've heard a lot about this because I follow a lot of true crime accounts and it's super interesting to read everyone's posts about like, why is it that certain cases like John Benet Ramsey get way more coverage than like if a young black person is murdered. I could tell you why. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) My eyes went so wide. I was like, huh? And I've been like reading a bunch about this on other people's shows and stuff like that, or listening to other people who have podcasts talk about this, who are way more knowledgeable on this topic than I am. But uh, it's very interesting. Look it up if you're interested in seeing like how the media portrays murder true crime literally across the board pretty indiscriminate it feels like you know it's it's kind of uh jarring somehow not i don't know if it's not surprising but it's just weird how um we are uncovering these (laughs) these uh we are like uncovering these truths that we didn't even expect to exist but in the small things like true crime there's definitely like, um, I wouldn't call it a bias. Maybe there is a bias. Maybe there's an agenda. But even just in the small things that we think are kind of pedestrian, like not that this podcast is pedestrian, but <laughs> the topics are like true crime and it's fun and it's exciting. But even here, we're starting to uncover the truth of like, we don't, we don't talk as much about 
people of color as we do the white people who are getting murdered and we're not as outraged or we're not as uh, empathetic or heartbroken. So, um, you know, I think all of our personal growth, a lot of it's really good, but for the most part, I think personal growth is difficult. And the fact that we are kind of uncovering those difficulties in our own lives and in our own small little ways is, I think, going to be very, very beneficial uh, moving forward. I agree. Perfectly put. Okay. So like I said, today we're going to be covering uh, injustice against Eric Glisson. So I first heard about this case when over interterm last or in the fall semester, like I heard about this class they were doing at my school about true crime in the media. So I was like, of course I have to take that class. <laughs> so over interterm, I took true crime in the media and we watched this incredible documentary from Dateline about Eric Glisson. And I don't, do you know who Josh Mankiewicz is? No, if you show me his face, I'd probably know. He's like the pretty much one of the main guys from Dateline. And he's been working there for like so many years. He's just like the guy from Dateline. And uh, he came into our class as a guest speaker, which was already freaking amazing. Like I was so excited to meet him because I've been watching Dateline for so long. And he showed us this documentary that he'd helped to make with Dateline on Eric Glisson. And I honestly just found it so like completely moving just because he's like the, the thing that happened to Eric Glisson, which we, I don't want to like spoil it right yeah. off the bat, but it's just something I never even considered in true crime, but it's so interesting to look at. So interesting to see, especially in the context of like our world right now. So let's, let's, let's jump into it. Okay. So February 3rd, 1995, Eric Glisson is convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. Hmm. Okay. Is that common? It's in pretty common. It's it's pretty common. Okay. We're we're gonna talk about that at the end. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I just Sorry. I wanted to give that statement yeah, yeah. straight off the bat. Okay. And then we're going to kind of go into his life. Okay. So Eric Listen, when he was brought into prison, he was twenty years old. Crazy. I'm nineteen years old, so he's a year older than me. And his daughter, which he had just had, was only a week old at the time that he goes into prison. And when he goes into prison, he's obviously outraged, but he's kind of like, well, there's nothing I can do now except try to work the case and maintain my innocence. So we're going to be talking about basically his story and what happened to Eric Glisson just generally in this is like fairly recent. So in 1995, January 18th is the night of the murder that puts six people in the Bronx into prison. So Denise Raymond, who is an executive at FedEx, uh, she was murdered in her apartment. She was shot, I believe. And a detective from the Bronx uh, Police Department named Thomas Aiello was in charge of the case. And People who were working that case, the case of Denise Raymond, were kind of like canvassing houses. They were going around to the other apartments nearby and trying to interview people, you know, get statements for the case, get some evidence. That's what good. That's a good thing to do. And as the night kind of goes on, this had happened then later at night on January 18th. Another murder happens within the same police precinct, basically a half mile away from where Denise Raymond had been murdered at 7.15 a.m. on January 19th. They found the body of Baith Diop. 
he's a livery cab driver in New York and he had been shot multiple times in his car in what seemed to be a robbery because he was missing some of his belongings, including his cell phone and his watch. And this case, like I said, in the same police department was headed by a guy named Mike Donnelly. And Donnelly and Aello, they're kind of working their cases. You have the murder of a woman in her apartment, Denise, and she was a FedEx executive. Then you have a cab driver named uh, Beth Diop, and he's a half mile away. So the police is kind of spread thin at this time. But Donnelly and Aello, the guys who are working these cases, believe start to believe that the same people had committed these murders, that they were somehow connected, even though they seemed very different on the outside. And they believed that the murder had been committed by a group of people. So February 4th, 1995, this police department brings in Michael Cosme and Eric Glisson, and they're both questioned by the police, Bronx Police Department in connection with these two murders, basically a double homicide. And Glisson and five other people, five other young people, the youngest of which I believe is 19, are arrested for these two murders, basically a double homicide. However, because there was a lack of evidence, the prosecution decided at the last minute for Eric Glisson and one other person who's in this group of six people who are being arrested for these crimes to not charge for Denise Raymond's murder because there's literally no evidence putting them at the scene of the crime whatsoever. And I just got to bring this up. The, there was no forensic evidence to back any of these people being arrested. Um, the only piece of evidence that they had was for the murder of Mr. Diop, uh, the cab driver. There was one, one witness, Miriam Ta uh, Tavares, and she said that she'd seen Eric and a group of five other kids from the neighborhood who were with the taxi driver when the murder had been happening. And she was the only eyewitness. Uh, besides, there was one other man in an apartment nearby who said that he'd saw only one person running from the crime scene. So mm. there's two witness accounts. And basically, they just decide, we're going to go with what Miriam said. And they arrest all six people and convict them for murder, essentially on zero forensic evidence, no DNA found at the scene, and nothing can place them at the scene of the crime except for this one woman's testimony. So, and another thing I have to say is that Miriam and Eric Glisson had actually had a brief uh, sexual relationship, and he dumped her abruptly, and mm. he believed that she was blaming this murder on him and lying about it because she was upset that he had dumped her essentially wow. because he from the beginning said like i'm not guilty i've never seen this person i'm not any of that so he gets arrested along with these five other people like i said we have two witnesses conflicting testimonies only one of them is believed the police say okay we think these two murders are connected let's arrest all these kids who live in this neighborhood in the bronx and let's put them in jail so they do they get arrested they have a jury trial they still get arrested and they go to jail and essentially nothing happens for about 16 years. These kids are all in jail, including Eric Glisson. They, uh, Eric specifically goes to Sing Sing Correctional Facility, which is like a high intensity, like a high security prison in New York. One of the most high security prisons because he's a, a murderer to the state. Yeah. And 
so that's where in that prison dateline and a couple other people start to kind of track Eric's story because he's very adamant to everyone that comes through that he's not guilty of this crime. He's not guilty of this crime. And he has a lot of motivation to get out obviously because his daughter was literally only a week old when he went in. Wow. So he's in there for a really long time. And while he's in there, he's taking classes. He's uh, teaching GE classes to other inmates. And when he's in there, he meets this woman named, basically he calls her grandma, but her name was actually uh, Sister Joanna Chan. She was a nun. She volunteered at the prison in like theater programs with the inmates. They would put on plays and she would, yeah, super cool. She would teach Chinese to the inmates. And Eric Glisson always stood out to her because for one, obviously because first of all, he's like a really nice guy who is serving 25 to life for a murder that with six other people. Um, and that he keeps saying no forensic evidence. There's nothing that can tie me to this crime. And he's very saying, like he's saying the killers who actually killed these people got free. And he's looking into the case on his own time. Like st- since 1995, he had been slowly requesting access to documents through the freedom of information act so that he could try to find the real killer all while he was imprisoned in Sing Sing. And he was taking a lot of classes. He took classes on law and spent a lot of time in the law library so that he could learn about his rights and figure out ways that he could be looking into the case. And eventually, though, he lost all of his appeals in court, lost all of his appeals. And he went to grandma and she basically told him i'm going to try to get you some help so that's where she called this man named peter cross who was a lawyer not a criminal lawyer but a corporate lawyer (laughs) Um, but basically he came in he wanted to do sister chan a favor so he met with glisten and he started developing a friendship with him and eventually he believed his story and told glisten that he would take his case pro bono even though he wasn't a criminal lawyer he believed eric's story that he hadn't been you know fairly tried or anything all the appeals before didn't work so maybe try something a little bit different with the corporate lawyer and not someone else you know well it's crazy in this case also it wasn't just like any case it was really high profile like these two detectives who said these cases are connected and we got these people they were actually uh, featured in new york magazine for that case for their incredible work in connecting to seemingly distant homicides. Wow. Like they got on the front page, they had their own article, they were in the limelight for this specific case. So it was pretty well known. Like could, that's Could I could I maybe speak to that? Yes. Maybe just a just a thought that I had. Um what's what's interesting is when we hear uh, politicians say like we're going to be tough on crime that looks very different in reality I feel like than it does in um I don't know it just looks different um than the way we imagine it I watched a show called The Wire and it's all about Baltimore PD and um it's it's a really great show and it's really eye-opening show but just the decisions they make to either um prosecute like go go ahead and do you know a case or go ahead and look into someone has a lot more to do with the productivity of like incarcerating people or the productivity of charging people than like the actual crime or the way they feel about it because you have this quota. But like 
if you apply that same logic, like, hey, we're gonna be tough on crime, you need to be, you need to have this percentage of people convicted, you need to do this, you need to do that. Of course, you want to see positive results, but like, I work at a church, and you know, my bosses could be like, we want, we want ten thousand people coming to church. We want more, more kids coming to church, and we could easily do that by, um, you know giving away 15 iPads and 25 pairs of AirPods. And, you know, we could do, we could do things to get people there, but it would sacrifice the integrity of what we're doing. And I feel like not that maybe one is better than the other, but I feel like for law enforcement and sending people to jail, maybe there should be kind of a benchmark of integrity. That's a little bit, you know, that is equal to maybe like church integrity (laughs) for getting people to come to church, you know, because not that we don't want people to go, but, the win is getting people to to recognize and understand the movement and and just the the thought behind what we're doing versus just getting butts in the seats. Um, so maybe law enforcement or something could take a page out of that that playbook. Yeah, it's just kind of ridiculous because the fact of the matter is like it should be more important that you're a putting the right people in prison and b actually catching people like if that means you need to take more time to do it then that's what you need to do because the fact of the matter is like people get in prison for crimes they didn't commit and then because of like the either ignorance or just being bad at their job someone who actually committed a crime like someone who actually committed a murder doesn't go to prison it's like yeah that's the whole point we don't want people who didn't do stuff in jail like that's bad yeah, not good. <laughs> that means you're not, that means things aren't happening well. Um, yeah, I feel like gambling, like if you're going to take a chance, um, and sometimes you have to trust your instincts, and of course our justice system is going to make mistakes because it's it's just imperfect. It can never be perfect. But um, I'd rather take the high-stakes gambling to Vegas and play a little bit uh, less intense with people's lives. You know, if you, if you want to gamble $300 on a blackjack hand, the consequences of you losing that is, are far less intense than the consequences of some guy being in a box for 16 years. Yeah. It's, it's just ridiculous because you have to like, also just think of the fact that these guys, like they put these people away on one witness testimony and six people. So five men, one woman, they put these people away and then they're like proud of themselves, patting themselves on the back, getting newspaper articles written about them on one witness testimony with zero DNA evidence. Like this isn't what time was, what time was the testimony at? Do you know? Like, was it nighttime, daytime? It was morning. Like Like, what time do you mean? She saw them. She said she saw them. Yeah. She said she saw them early in the morning. So let's just say it's like five in the morning. Like you see something at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. I don't know. And you were dating this person and this person had ill will. Could you imagine seeing someone running the street uh, with long curly hair and glasses? And you're like, oh, that looks just like Stephen Wright. You know, and because you know me, you have a past relationship with me. We've, you know, hung out together and we've, we work together. We're coworkers. You know, you got to take that into consideration when you are charging for a murder. Sorry, I get on my soapbox now. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. It's just that's why now you can't like circumstantial evidence, even though, yes, it's still 
a type of evidence. Witness testimonies aren't considered to be concrete evidence anymore because now we know more about like witnesses and just the nature of people and memories. Your memory's and we know dumb. You can make, if you think you saw something, you could have seen something completely different. But if you think you saw something, your brain will be, will make that up for you. Like a, one witness is not reliable whatsoever. Like yeah. one witness cannot put anyone, shouldn't be able to put anyone away in court. Yeah. And this woman, not only that, but the fact that she had a negative connection to one of the people who was yes. going to jail, like that makes her not very, not a very reliable witness. Yeah. And it's, it's just absolutely ridiculous, honestly, because you would think like, this is your job. This is your, the whole thing. Like, this is your only job. Okay. Yeah. Like pick a struggle. You can't be a bad person and be bad at your job. Like, yeah. come on. It's yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And then Eric Glisson, this poor guy goes into prison and has to do their job for them essentially. Oh my gosh. But I want to read this quote from him too. Cause I feel like it's very appropriate with what we're talking about. But he said, at when he was talking about why he spent so much time fighting, even like though it had been literally decades and cause he was in there total, he was in there for 18 years. So he said, quote, I'm a fighter. I die on my feet and on my knees. Mm. So he said like, I wasn't going to just sit there and let life happen to me. Basically he like fought for it. He fought for his freedom. And that kind of all started with this nun with like with this nun, Sister Chan. So he met her and she brings in this lawyer. He's like, I'll do the case. This case seems like pretty cut and dry that they obviously didn't give you a fair trial, didn't give you what you deserved. So he knew that in order to get Eric out of prison, he was going to need like strong evidence, like find the killer's strong evidence. But the first thing he did was he went back to the evidence that had gotten Eric and five others in jail. He went back to Miriam uh, Tavares and he said, okay, I need to question this lady. She unfortunately died of a drug overdose in 2002, so he couldn't talk to her, but the building that she had lived in in 1995 was still up, still mm -hmm. there. Like her apartment where she lived was still exactly the same it was in 1995. So Peter Cross goes back and he goes back to check the crime scene and see okay, where did this happen? Where did she say she saw my client? And he goes to the window where she said she'd seen the crime from. It's about 100 yards away from where the actual crime occurred. And keep in mind, this is in the early morning that she said she saw this. And not only that, but she said that from 100 yards away, that's a long, like that's pretty far away. I feel like that's like a parking lot, you know? Yeah, a football like, field. Like, yes, yeah. She said she could hear the conversations that were happening around the car. She could hear what they were saying. She could see what had been stolen from this taxi driver from where she was standing in the window. Mm. Impossible. You couldn't read a impossible. license plate yeah, from no. that far away. Absolutely not. Yeah. And so I don't even think you could read like a big street sign, honestly. Like that is pretty far away. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Peter Cross goes back and he goes into this apartment where she'd been living and he puts like stuff on the ground so he could say, okay, here's exactly because the day that they had actually found this cab driver and uh, Denise Raymond in her apartment, they made videotapes of the crime scene so that they could like, instead of taking a bunch of photos, they made a big video of the crime scene. So I've seen both videos. And because of that, 
he was able to cross was able to say okay here's where the car was when they found it with his body in it here's where miriam was and he like put it on the ground he's like okay here's the cab he goes back into her apartment and he looks through this bathroom window that she'd said she saw everything out of and from 100 yards away from that window it was physically impossible to see the car to have it in her sight line wow physically also, impossible like, i mean i don't want to make any judgments but you you don't know like what she was doing. You don't know if she was up late and just happened to wake up, you know, like, I mean, after a long day of work, like I worked uh, yesterday was a long day for us. It's Monday. Sundays are really long days, but, um, what, what my brain is doing if I have a long day or just when I wake up, my brain is so, so much more delayed in its processing ability Yeah. at 7am. At 5 a.m., you know, it takes me a while to get the engine running. I feel like everyone has that. But even if she was sharp as a tack, she still couldn't see anything. Yeah. No, she couldn't. Like, if you go, uh, Dateline has a fantastic documentary all about Eric Glisson and, his, and this case. They call it the Bronx Six, these people who were mm -hmm. arrested. They have a video where they literally go to that apartment and shoot through the bathroom window and show you the street and how it the car is literally like hundred feet back from where it would need to be for her to even see like the front of the car. Like there was just no way she could have possibly seen what was going on, much less heard anything that was going on. So she couldn't have been a witness to this yeah. crime from her testimony already impossible. And he also find found out that detective Donnelly, the guy who had been literally assigned to this case, never visited the crime scene. It's a big, it's a big no, no. Didn't, go like not even at all not even to check her testimony but not even to see the murder he was supposed to be solving so was he like sitting on his couch eating some chips like <laughs> this guy looks guilty well it's just this it's just this other detective in his precinct already had a murder and he was like oh i think they're connected and then they just went from there like they clearly already had an idea in their mind of who was guilty and how this case was going to go. And they just ran with it. I wonder if they had any like internal biases to maybe con maybe point them towards that conclusion just about certain people. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be terribly surprised by it, I have <laughs> to say, because the fact of the matter is they arrested six young black kids. All black? All black. And mm. these are two you know, older Caucasian detectives mm. in the Bronx who just clearly, I'm not, I don't want to say like, we don't know for sure that they were racially prejudiced. You know, we really don't know that for sure, but we can say for sure that they were really bad at their jobs. No yes. matter what, they were terrible police officers because they put six people in prison without, without, uh, how do you not go to the crime scene? I didn't even think that was possible to not go to the crime scene of the murder you're solving. <laughs> like how did he just go off the video? That's not good. That's no. not right. But so you get paid to do. Yeah. I feel like I'd be excited to go, not excited. That's a, that's a bad way of saying it, but like, I feel like I'd be maybe inclined to go to a crime scene. <laughs> if my, you know, like if, if it was your whole entire job. Yeah. It, like as a musician, if I want to buy a new guitar, you know what I do? I look at videos, but I also really like to get my hands on the thing I want to buy mm -hmm. so that I can use it and see it like firsthand. Um, I don't normally just buy crap online that I think I'll like and go, eh, sure. 
you know? <laughs> yeah. And to think that it's like people's lives, like you're talking about murder and you don't, I guess it's like, does it, did it just lose its importance to you after years of working as a police officer? Did it just lose its, like, did you lose your hardworking intent? Like, did you just completely forget what it means to be a good cop? It just doesn't, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me how I, you would not go to the crime scene and then just put someone away for 25 to life. Are you I, kidding? From from the From the, you know, if you look at it, at face value, it feels like that. But also the 30,000 feet in the air perspective of that is, wow, there's a, there's, there's a culture and there's a system where that is permissible. Um, so what's going on there on a, yeah. on a broad scale? Like how many more times does that happen? How many more cases do we not know of? How many more cases? And you know what? The thing is too, I don't think he's guilty, uh, but let's just say he was the integrity of our justice system doesn't necessarily rely on did he or did he not do it. It is the due process, right? It is yeah. the, it is, it, it, it is the system in which we, we orient ourselves to, to come to these conclusions. So whether he did it or not, would not say it's irrelevant, but the, the process is, is very relevant. And from my perspective, it seems as though that has failed. Yeah, for sure. Because it should have been like, it's their job. I guess the police, it's not their job to necessarily prove him guilty or innocent. It's just their job to get a person that then the prosecution can prove is guilty. But I guess from that perspective, it's kind of like, well, it wasn't that necessary for us to make sure that he was guilty of the crime. Cause that's not our job. We got you the person that we had a witness testimony against and now you either put him in prison or you don't. And our, our, our culture is built and I'm not an anti-capitalist at all, but it's definitely built on productivity and it's built on moving that linear progression up and up and up and up. And as a result, uh, we have, you know, created pollution. We have polluted our air because, well, uh, the bottom line is the productivity. And I think maybe our, uh, you know, so many things are intertwined, but just our ecosystem is, has been taxed just by our desire for productivity. And I think it's an accurate comparison and correlation to see how maybe we need to get 50,000 people in prison for, for murder this month. Well, shoot, there's six right there. Let's just, let's round them up. Let's put them in there. Hey, you know, so the productivity keeps on going and the money keeps on coming in because it does pay to have some people in prison. I don't know if you know this, but when people get put in prison, people make money off of it. Um, so to continue just that increase of wealth and that increase of productivity uh, comes at a cost and it's people like this. Yeah. Who who have to face that and who have to be the they're the collateral damage in the system. Yeah, it's so sad because you just uh, I guess it's just you want it to be different than that and you want to look at this and say, "All right, in America, we would never take a guy who had one witness testimony against him and not check to even see if that witness's statement could have been true, not visit the crime scene." 
and put him in a cell where when he stands in the middle, he can touch both walls for 18 years because we were lazy. Like <laughs> we just want to think that that could never happen, especially to literally five other people. Yeah. And then it does. And you just start to question like, man, the justice system a lot of times doesn't do its job as well as it really should be doing. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't. And I think that in pretty much every country, the justice system is just rough. Like it is hard to create one that actually works. I think in the US, ours is like, okay, as, as well as justice systems go, but it doesn't, yeah, it really doesn't work all the time. And like, that's scary to think that the thing that's supposed to protect you and like punish people who do really bad things might put an innocent person in prison and that doesn't deserve it. And and the consequences never, never, never hits. It never goes upwards. The consequences just go down because now this kid of this guy who was wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted is now paying the price for, uh, you know, other people's incompetency. And yeah. I think this is we're at a turning point now where we're starting to see, okay, you killed a guy uh, who shouldn't have been killed. You're going to go to jail now, you know, because that didn't happen. They got paid administrative leave. But we haven't seen the, um, you know, we just haven't seen the consequences placed upon the people who deserve them. 99% of the time, it feels like, the people who are wrongfully accused are like, yeah, you get to go out of jail. But now you have to process the torment of 18 years in prison for being wrongfully accused. And your child has grown up with no father. Yeah. And that's not. And the fact that it wasn't even it's not his fault that he went into prison for 18 years. But it doesn't change the fact for his daughter that she didn't have a father growing up, you know, and like the strain on on that relationship is probably a lot because it's like, what are you going to do? You can't blame him, but this is also like has impacted your life negatively and his family and his friends and obviously like him who missed out on like, I'm 19 years old. The youngest guy of these six was 19 years old. Like I can't imagine going into prison and being like almost in my forties when yeah. I come out, you know? Yeah, I'm I'm 25, and I, I think as you grow up, I think growing up is a privilege. I think growing up is awesome, um, uh, but you you learn how short life is, and you learn how valuable time is. And it's hard for me even just sitting here thinking about um, and, and trying to have some compassion and empathy for someone who just will not get that time back. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. And the other frustrating thing is that if it hadn't been for Eric Glisson being so like persevering and doing his best to try to figure out who actually murdered these people, like he just wouldn't have gotten out of prison. And so, like I said, when he got with Peter Cross and he finally had a lawyer and his appeals were all gone, he's still looking into who could be the killer. And after more than it took more than 10 years for him to get any documents related to the case, even after he'd filed to get the documents related to the case because the assistant DA kept denying it. And Eric was just trying to like chase these leads. But eventually the very first document that he gets 
in is the phone records of the cab driver who had been murdered. Because remember I said earlier that when this guy had been killed, they thought it was a robbery because his phone and his wallet were missing and his watch, I believe. And so he gets the phone records of this guy who he, you know, didn't know before this, but has become basically the person that he murdered. And he's yeah. looking at his phone records. And Very he familiar sees, with this man now, you know, after. Yeah, yeah. And so he sees that minutes after the murder had been committed on January 19th, he sees that there had been phone calls placed, like a lot of phone calls placed from this guy's phone. So obviously the murderer had, the murderer had called people off of this guy's phone and he's he able to, or he was a ghost, <laughs> a ghost who could use the telephone. Yeah. Yeah. And Let's go with the ghost. I guess the detective was like, you know what? Ghosts are probably real. Casper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So he's able to connect the case to this gang called Sex Money Murder, which operated in the Bronx. And I found that interesting for one of two reasons. It's the one, Kendrick Lamar lyric. Is it really? Yeah. I DNA, didn't know that. Sex Money Murder. Yeah. Well, it's also, I just like that gang name because it's just so like, here is the, what the we nose. do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, is Sex Money Murder too on the nose? <laughs> nah, it's good. It's all good. It sounds great, dude. <laughs> well, it's just so like exactly what do we do what? in sex, money, murder? Okay. Well, first thing, <laughs> second thing, and then yeah, yeah, it's just ridiculous. It would be like calling your job uh, singer to kids, yeah. Like if that was your description, they're like, "Do you need a job description, or is the title sufficient?" It's like, yeah, I think the title, <laughs> the name, uh, kind of, yeah, yeah. We sell books, you know. That's, yeah, exactly. It's a bookstore. It's very, so I don't mean to be laughing at a gang. This is no insult. I don't believe they're operational anymore. I think it was more of a nineties gang, but, um, not trying to insult a gang on a podcast, but yeah. Can we redact? No, (laughs) good name. Um, so basically this gang sex, money, murder is operating in the Bronx and we're, we're going back. Let's go back to 1995 because I want to bring in a few details that Eric Glisson had to find out on his own and other people found out that I find very interesting that weren't brought up. So the precinct that arrested the Bronx Six, that was the 43rd precinct in the Bronx. And basically there was this other precinct where sex, money, murder operated that was not the 43rd, different precinct. So there's this detective from another precinct. His name is Faselli. I hope I'm not pronouncing that wrong, but uh, it's an Italian name. My grandpa would be very upset. But his name is Faselli. He's a detective in the Bronx, and he gets tipped off in 1995. There's this murder that happened in Soundview, which is near the Bronx, I believe. It's in New York, close to the area. And it's in the 43rd precincts, you know, realm the zone the zone their operating circle (laughs) i don't know the sphere of influence the sphere of influence and this other cab driver who had been murdered whose six people had been convicted as part of a double homicide this connective murder that was a cab driver murdered in soundview and faselli had been tipped off about basically this exact description of this murder by someone who was an informant on sex money murder saying that they had killed that guy and stolen a bunch of stuff. And so Faselli visits the 43rd precinct twice to ask about this case twice saying, Hey, I have a guy from a gang tipping me off about this murder that happened 
on your guys' watch. Like, can you show me this file? Can you show me this case? The 43rd Precinct needs to step its game up. Truly. Like, 44 and 42 are, like, running away with it. If this is Mario (laughs) Kart, they're in 12th place. Yeah. And, like... They're on. They're like progressing to Rainbow Road by this Dude, point, oh. and the forty third is just like can't even get through. You know, Princess Peach's Beach. Or yes. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Rough. So, there. He's going. He's visiting the precinct. He's like, "Can you tell me about this murder? Because I'm pretty sure it happened for this gang, and I'm investigating this gang." And both times they tell him, "Sorry, we don't have a case that fits that description. We don't have a case that fits that." that description because they'd already closed it and convicted these six people. And so even though they have someone, well, they didn't even see the crime door, scene. So true. how do you expect them to, <laughs> to know if they've never even seen the place where it happened? So it's just ridiculous because they're, they're here. They're saying we literally have, here is the answer to your case on a silver platter with evidence with an informant who is trustworthy with a person who's very good at investigating this gang saying hey i want to come help you with that case and boom shut the door in their face no we can't we don't even consider that we might have imprisoned the wrong people here so they just let him go let this guy go and so was eric who after they buried that didn't talk to anyone about that didn't tell anyone that sex money murder could even be possibly implicated into it. Eric gets the fo- these phone records of the cab driver and he finds that there had been calls made to members of sex money murder named Jose Rodriguez and Gilbert Vega from the phone minutes after the murder and they're connected to sex money murder. So Eric finally has his proof basically. He's saying, okay, well, why weren't these two guys who proven to have this his phone At this time, why weren't they investigated? The cops could have had these records right away. Like, to solve the case, they would have been able to get his phone records right away. So clearly, they either, A, didn't bother to look at the guy's phone records after his phone had been stolen, which had the answer to the case right there, or B, they purposefully hid the information because they didn't want a gigantic lawsuit about the fact that they'd already imprisoned six people. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, and it took Eric 16 years to get these phone records. Like, literally, the DA just wouldn't give him the records. Here's my issue with that. And I'm sorry if I'm interrupting. No, or interrupt all you want. If you buy a, a supplement, like let's say you buy po- protein powder, the best kind you can buy are the ones out of the sticker that say, uh, <clears throat> tested by the third party. Because they can put, you know, uh, frog leg puree in their protein powder and they could write, they could say proprietary blend and it's this crap product, right? So they send it to a third party tester so that they can say, okay, we have no vested interest in you buying this. So we're going to be in, I guess, an arbiter or like, you know, determine whether or not this is valid. That's what the justice system is supposed to be. Yeah. But what I feel like is the justice system has has mutated into this one party in a lot of ways where there is no third party to determine like whether or not this is right or wrong. And I might be, I might be mistaken because the justice system is this third party between, you know, Stephen Wright versus the state of California, right? You know, there's, there are these things that happen and not that everything's bad. And I hate when people are like, man, you're just saying that what should we be uh, an oligarchy? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is like, there needs to be changes. And I think like, you know, people getting per- 
getting prosecuted for killing innocent people um, and using illegal force. Like there's this third party happening, but for so long it has felt like there is no third party. And I'm speaking specifically for black people and Hispanic people and people of color and marginalized, uh, you know, marginalized minorities. There is no third party for them. So it's like such a rigged game. And this feels like it just barfs that out on your, all over your face. Like the injustice barf all over you. Mm-hmm. And then you have to wipe the barf and look at it and say, what do I do with this barf on my face that smells like injustice? A hundred percent. So it's, I love that <laughs> analogy. I don't know. I can't say it any better than that. But it's just, it's ridiculous to me that from the get-go, the 43rd had phone records that could easily prove, like, that could easily be connected to a gang where they had a cop saying, hey, I was tipped off about this murder, like, right after it happened with no communication from you. They're so bowling that, with bumpers on. Yeah, essentially. Dude, with the analogies <laughs> today, with the analogies. So I'm feeling it. Eric, from prison, solves this murder with zero resources in a way that the cops just didn't do for him, didn't do for him. While showering with like 70 other people every day. Yeah. And he described prison, like in the interviews I've seen with him, he talks about how prison was like hell for him. He absolutely couldn't stand it there. He hated it. He was worried about being murdered himself. Like he was absolutely miserable there knowing his daughter was growing up without him. And he literally solved this murder basically by himself. Yeah. And I think for today, we're going to end it right there and move on to my favorite segment of the show because we're going to do that a little next week. There's going to be a special surprise at the end of the case, which may or may not include us getting to talk to Eric Glisson himself. But for now, we're just going to stop it right where he solved the murder and we'll tell you guys the rest next week. But uh, let's move on to my favorite segment, which is... Happy things, yes. which we desperately need after the conversation we just had. Yes. So this is basically the time where we just say one good thing that happened in our week or one good thing that's going to happen in our week. Stephen, would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? Yeah, I'd love to go first. And I'm going to keep this uh, in the same vein of what we're talking about because I'm a believer that we are living, believe it or not, in the best time in human history. And you're like, what? What do you mean? We have COVID-19 happening. We have a race war. Um, The political divide has never been crazier. And yes, you're 100% right. But think about 10 years ago, Dateline was talking about this. And or I don't know how long ago it was, but let's just say 10 years ago, Dateline was talking about this and talking about the racial injustice and talking about how effed up everything is. And today there's two people who are in their late teens, early 20s, almost mid 20s. Dear Lord, um, <laughs> that was my crappy thing. Of the, no, I'm just kidding. Um, now we're talking about this, and this is really cool um, because we are opening up our hearts and the scales are being removed from our eyes on what is happening in the world. And um, the good thing that happened to me is uh, my wife and I have been having conversations and watching movies um, and documentaries and, uh, just thinking about how we are going to orient ourselves in this new world, because my biggest fear right now is that in October, November, everything goes back to normal. And I never want that. But, um, there's the good thing is the blessing that I received on just 
hearing about this person's life. His name's Brian Stevenson. He has a documentary about him called True Justice. He is a lawyer and he has won like 18 cases Dang. Uh, with the Supreme Court. Oh, and wow. he represents people on death row. And um, he is one of the American heroes because a lot of what I said about the justice system, about it working properly, not necessarily about whether or not they're guilty or not, but the due process being true and right and proper and doing proper work. A lot of what I understand and the way that I perceive it is from him. And he has dedicated his life to saving these people. And he has so many cases like the one we're talking about where he's gone in and worked for these people. And he's this lawyer who's done a ton of work and makes no money. He's not like a Wall Street lawyer, but um, we have watched so many things, read so many things, tried our best to inform ourselves and just listen. And we've been in our listening holding pattern. And this was a, this video, this documentary called True Justice, HBO, Brian Stevenson's story. There's actually a, a dramatic depiction of it. Michael B. Jordan plays Brian Stevenson, I think. I haven't seen that movie, but it's like about him and about his story. Just watching that and the other things we watched, uh, we've seen 13th Amendment. Uh, we were watching LA 92, uh, just watching videos. We have listened a lot and I'm a person of color and um, I feel like um, for a long time, I felt like I have had to deny that part of me because I was raised in a white house because my parents got divorced um, and I was told that I was not a real Mexican, but now I'm kind of like, you know what? I am a real Mexican because I do fit into those stereotypes. The stereotypes that you see are cholos and that's like 1% of the Mexican population, but I work hard. I love my family. I take care of my people and I'm nice and I laugh a lot. Like that's very, and I listen to Morrissey. That's very Mexican, <laughs> especially SoCal Mexican with the Morrissey, the Smiths thing. Um, but all that is to say is I feel empowered to, um, be a uh, Chicano American that is fighting for uh, Black Lives Matter and and who's really into that. And I'm entering into this self-discovery mode. And uh, if it weren't for people like Brian Stevenson, if it weren't for um, just all these, you know, incredible, you know, Sean King, just these amazing people that I see on social media and watch movies about, I would not have been enlightened. And believe it or not, with them talking about the plight of their race and of a minority group that has caused so much pain it has afforded me an opportunity to reflect very deeply and make some personal growth. But also now I'm like, y'all racism sucks and I won't stand for it. That's awesome. That's super amazing. I think it's been really cool too, how all the streaming services have been like putting out yes. more things made by like black artists and movies about, you know, documentaries about what's been going on in the black community and, been very very interesting and cool that they've done that too i saw that on my net amazon prime account and i was mm -hmm. like oh this is really sick this yeah. is awesome that this is something that i feel like everyone it's bizarre to me that still in 2020 we can't like why can't everyone just be like racism is bad what <laughs> about right. you my happy thing much less um actually important than that um i finished avatar avatar the last oh. airbender like last week and i just have to say easily one of the top three best tv shows ever seen in my life like my list now has completely changed over quarantine so that's i guess a good thing about quarantine is yes. i watched avatar and i watched this show called crash landing on you 
and they've moved up into my top three. Like I finished crash landing on you like two weeks ago and I mm. restarted it last night wow. because I wanted to watch it again. So I, yeah, that's my happy thing is Avatar and understanding now why everyone was obsessed with Avatar when I was a kid and Has, being bummed that I was too dumb to watch it. So I would uh, do this thing where I'd wake up at like six and I had my TV right by my bed and I'd watch Avatar and Naruto, but I wasn't as an Avatar because it, 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 it came on at the time where I wasn't maybe always awake, but Naruto was on. So I'd watch that before school every day and then get up at 630 and have like an hour and a half to get ready <laughs> yeah. and, and walk to fifth grade. But um, Dakota, who is an employee here at the... At, at, Coworker, Coworker, yes. Employee here at FCCHB. He lives with my parents. You know this. I do know this. the listeners it's, don't. Yeah, it's a weird story to hear if you don't know you guys. Should I tell it just a little Go bit? Go ahead, okay. tell it. So uh, Dakota is an awesome musician. I literally needed a keys player to come up to camp. And another coworker was dating him. Well, is dating him. <laughs> was dating <laughs> was him like, at the Steven, time and also happened? this time. Yeah. <laughs> and also tomorrow and forever, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, okay, sorry. I, so, I, I won't make a weird. Uh, get <laughs> Keep going. But uh, took a flyer on him. Came to camp with us. Just needed a keys player. He was an amazing. A year later, I wanted to hire him, not because of how good he was at music, which that definitely helped, but because he came and played for us. And he did an amazing job uh, because he hung out with the kids and he played foosball with the, with the kids. And I have always hated the musician, church musician mindset of like, uh, I'm going to play my music and then not talk to any of the people because I think that is stupid. But um, so I heard him, but then he ended up moving with my parents because he couldn't live at the college that he was at. And he looks just like me. So he kind of just replaced me at my parents' house. And now he is a right brother. Uh, and him and him and him and Hudson are big on Avatar right now, dude. They watch it together a lot, and it's it's awesome. And I love that he's uh he's taking care of my baby bro while I don't live there. Yeah, that's so sweet. I watch it with my brother too. Like Aww. we watch it together, and it's good because he's like the age that I feel like Avatar is intended for. Perfect like he's for him. twelve, yeah. so. He, you know, it was perfect for him. But then at the end, I felt like I was almost like, Jack, are you kidding? Wake up. You need to watch <laughs> Avatar. Like I yes. was, I was getting a little too into it. And now I don't know if you have TikTok, but basically on TikTok, the more stuff you like, the more like your for you page adjusts to be like the same content that you like. And over the past two weeks, it's, I get so much Avatar content on there. That's amazing. It's ridiculous. Like the guy who... It's like videos of the voice actors like doing funny stuff and like saying things in their characters' voices. And it's almost embarrassing, but I'm kind of just proud of it at this point because it's a great, it's great. show. It's a great show. I've never done psychedelic drugs and I don't intend to. That's just <laughs> not on my radar. But um, I think I've heard people describe it. And um, I feel like for me, TikTok does to me what, um, <laughs> what people want psychedelic drugs to do for them. It, t it just takes me to this place where like <laughs> reality does not exist as the way I thought it, it would exist. And it's just such a strange and perplexing website that I'm not saying uh, psychedelic drugs are awesome, but TikTok is freaking <laughs> awesome. Yeah. My algorithm is all music stuff. And I, I love that, but 
dear God, sometimes I just want to get away from music. So I'm on my discover page and it's like, this is how you do. And I'm like, no, I don't want to hear your John Mayer cover. <laughs> and I don't want you to teach me how to play the John Mayer song. I want to watch a dad doing the, you know, uh, the weekend blinded by the lights dance with his children, all silly. Like, that's what I want. It depends which side of TikTok you're on because I'm on what's called alt TikTok. I don't know if you've nice. heard of this, but there's like the main TikTok. Then there's like alt TikTok, which is just stupid videos. And like recently a bunch of avatar stuff now that everyone's been obsessed with it. And also like just some bizarre videos that I'm like, am I really? And the thing is that now it's gotten almost a little too specific where it makes me uncomfortable. It's like, <sighs> we're going to draw like we're going to draw an avatar version of the merch Harry Styles just put out. And I'm like, what is happening? Or listening to a true crime podcast. Yeah. It's really weird. It's where it also though sometimes assumes things about me where I'm like, what, what's going on? Like it thinks that I have like family issues. I guess like the people that upload stuff that I like all don't get along with their parents very well. So mine's like when your parents do this, I'm like, Hmm, I have a good relationship with my family, but this is still funny. Like, and now all of it is just like, it's very strange. I so. fall into the the alt left, uh, Atifa, Antifa adjacent, um, social justice warrior, nonpartisan TikTok. That's that's my bag <laughs> right there. That's that's my. I was also told I, I'm kind of like an e boy. An e-boy? Or a sad boy? Oh, no. Whoever that said that was trying to insult you, Steven. <laughs> like, it was a junior higher. Okay, maybe it was a compliment then, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up and it was just a guy who was like, kind of looked like a dork. Little hoodie. <laughs> it's basically like someone that wears uh, all black and like has earrings and piercings and they like actually emo, but they also like wear makeup. It's like today's version of an emo kid, but they were probably if it was a junior higher trying to compliment you because that's like the new cool thing. To be an Oh, I know a band, The Garden, I think. Yes. Loved by E-Boys. Dude. All right. I got to go do some soul searching. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> you might be an E-Boy. <laughs> no. But like, why would... Don't put that on me. Don't put that on you that I, you like The Garden? No, I, I don't dislike them, but I, uh, I've been thinking about getting like my nose pierced. Oh, and now Steven. I'm starting to like question like what is going on. But I'm wearing a white t-shirt and workout pants and workout shoes and a headband. But you have long hair and I you're thinking have... about getting your nose pierced. That's two strikes. What's the third strike? An earring or um, talking on Instagram about how much you love mosh pits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess I'm going to go to Tommy T's today and get my nose pierced and my ears. I think we're going to end the episode there. Thank you guys so much for listening to the 50th ever episode of the Horrible Things Podcast. I'm not going to get too sappy on you guys probably till the next episode, but I love you very much. Thank you for supporting and listening. If you've listened this far to all 50 episodes, I appreciate it so much that you <clears throat> want to sit here and listen to my voice. And I love you guys. I appreciate you very much. If you want to find the... Hold on. <laughs> okay. If you want to find the podcast on a day when it's not a Tuesday, please feel free to go find us online at Horrible Things Podcast. I love you guys. I appreciate you. And I just want to say that if you're a detective, go to the crime scene. And if you don't do drugs, 
but you are a little bit crazy, get on TikTok. <laughs> but more importantly, don't, don't do, do horrible, horrible things. things. And drugs.